Welcome to the Living Faith Missionary Church Podcast. You're about to listen to a message from Pastor Chris Starn, Senior Pastor at Living Faith in Yoder, Indiana. It is our prayer that this message is an encouragement and a blessing to your life. Turn to, if you turn to the book of Isaiah, we're in the 15th chapter. Where do you, where do you go? Where to you, do you run to when, when life seems to be crashing in around you? You know, for some of us, there are people that we run to. We run to our parents. We run to our family. We run to our friends who, what they usually, what usually happens, we go to them, we, we say, man, I'm just struggling right now. And what do they do? They, they give us a pep talk. You know, they console us. Sometimes they, you know, kick us in the backside. What are you thinking? You, you know, you're fine. But a lot of times it's that hug, that, that consoling that we need. But where would you run to if your whole world fell apart? Where would you go if everything that you knew, every every little bit of your daily life was all of a sudden gone? Every bit of normal was destroyed. Where do you go? Where do you run to escape? Our verses today are going to give us an account, and this is the challenge of expositional preaching, I kept to a, come to a chapter and I'm like, man, what do I, what do I say about this? <laughs> you know? And then as I go along, it's like, oh, yeah, now I see, I see what this is all about. I see what you're showing me, God. And what I'm learning myself. And that's what I try to share with you. But our verses today are going to give an account of a whole nation. A whole nation that must go on the run. Because if they don't, they will be destroyed. So, let's look at the book of, book of Isaiah, chapter 15, starting with verse 1. So what it says. It says, an oracle concerning Moab. And we'll get to a moment who Moab is. Because Ar of Moab is laid waste in a night. Ar was a, is a fortress city. It's a city of walls. It's one of their big cities. It's the city that's supposed to protect them from the enemy. Moab is undone because Kir of Moab is laid waste in a night. Moab is undone. So let me give you a brief synopsis of who, the, who Moab, where Moab was, who were the Moabites. The Moabites were actually a descendant of Lot. You know, Lot, his daughters, his wife in Sodom, nephew of Abraham. They have to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels come. They all head out except for the wife who turns around and looks when she's told not to, turns to the pillow of salt. Lot and his daughters go into hills, into the hills. They actually go to Zoar. Then they go into the mountains and the daughters are afraid that, there are, that it is the end of the world. And there are not going to be any more men except for their father. So by their father, they have children. I know. Strange things happen in the Bible. Remember, just because it's in the Bible does not mean it's what's supposed to happen. There's a difference between, between being descriptive and prescriptive. Descriptive means it tells what happened. Prescriptive is you're supposed to do this. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's prescriptive. Lot and his daughters having children are proscriptive, prescriptive. Lot and his daughters having children is descriptive. So remember that. But they go and they have children. Needless to say, the Moabites are the descendants of Lot. 
And actually, um, not only that, but the Ammonites are also a descendant of Lot. One of the daughters had a child that became the Moabites. The other daughter had a child that became the Ammonites. And the Ammonites and the Moabites were both enemies of Israel. They occupy a piece of land that's probably about 30 miles square. Not a, not a huge nation. Not a, a large, you know, it's not as big as Israel. It's not as big. You can see it up here on the map. Uh, the blue, um, Kir Haraseth is one of the main towns. That is where it's at. It's down at the bottom end of the Dead Sea. During the Exodus, the Moabites are in the road, are on the way to when Israel is coming out of Egypt. They come from Mount Sinai and they're heading up along the eastern side of the Jordan and the Dead Sea. And the Moabites, they they were asked by Israel, will you let us come through your land? I mean, they're cousins, right? Everybody loves their cousin, right? Unless you're from West Virginia and usually you're fighting your cousins. But the Moabites say, no, you can't come through. And the Israelites want to destroy them, but God says, "No, you cannot, because they are they are a, a, they are your relatives. You cannot destroy them." And this is where the Moabites were the ones who hired Balaam. You remember, if you know any story about Balaam and the talking donkey, Balaam is hired by the Moabite king to go and put a curse on Israel, and he's riding his donkey, and his donkey stops in the middle of the road where there's a wall, and actually the donkey won't go any further, and the donkey goes up against the wall and is going to break, and basically almost breaks um, Balaam's leg, and he starts beating the donkey and screaming at the donkey, and the donkey begins to talk, and says, why are you beating me? Haven't I been your good servant this whole time? And that's when Balaam all of a sudden sees the angel of the Lord standing there with a sword ready to kill him. His donkey saved his life. So if your donkey starts to talk, either get back on your medicine or it's a message from God. Needless to say, the Moabites and the Israelites don't get along very well. Never have. But Israel is not allowed to that. What happens later is it's the Moabite women who seduce. uh, Balaam actually convinces the king to have the Moabite women seduce Israel, the Israelite men, and they begin to worship Baal, Baal which my kids found out this week is where Beelzebub comes from. It's Baal. The, king, the, the god Baal is, is basically Satan. During the time of the judges, uh, God actually will give Israel over to the Moabites. And if you ever hear the story of King Eglon, King Eglon is a rather large man. So one of the judges, Ehud, was a judge not very many people hear about, an Israelite judge. He goes over and he kills Eglon because he told them that you know he wanted to see him and he was bringing tribute. He takes a sword and stabs Eglon and it completely his, his belly completely absorbs the sword. And uh, it's kind of a funny, kind of a humorous story because his, his attendants, Eglon's attendants say, well, we don't want to go in there, maybe he's going to the bathroom. Just strange little things like that. But that's who that was. That's who the Moabites were. They're relatives, but they're not, ex- they're not following Yahweh. It is also the Moabite wives of Solomon who end up leading him astray in later times in his life. They're always the enemy of Israel. But even with all of that, if you know the story of Ruth, Ruth, who came back with her mother-in-law, Naomi, was a Moabite woman. And, Mo- and she ends up marrying Boaz, who have a son 
named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David, whose descendant is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's interesting. God uses whomever, however he wishes. We have the Moabites, terrible people, causing trouble for the Israelites, and yet within all that, we have Ruth that God uses to bring us our Savior. In Acts 10, this is what Peter says about, not about the Moabites, but about what God does. He says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Peter had, had was, was wondering, you know, these are Gentiles. God's not coming to the Gentiles. He's, they're not Jewish. But he says, in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. See, God has grace dealing with pagan people. He has grace dealing with those who deny him. Rain doesn't just fall on the Christian, on the believer, and not on the land of the non-believer. God shows grace to all, from every tribe, language, people, and nation. God is ruler over the whole earth. He is orchestrating the events of the earth. I've talked about this before. And the whole reason that I talk about this so much is the fact that I think that today we need to remember that, because this world is crazy. Things, and believe me, it's no crazier than it has been in the past. It's just, for us, this is odd, what's going on sometimes in the world. But God is still on his throne. So what happens is, in, our, in, in Isaiah 15, we have this unnamed invader who's, who's coming into Moab at night and devastating this small little nation. Verse 2. This is talking about the Moabites. It says, He has gone up to the temple and to Debon and to the high places to weep over Nebo and over Mediba, Moab, Wales. Now, you and I have no idea what these words, who these, where these places are, and a lot of them we do not know where they are. But understand, at the time of the writing of Isaiah, people would have known, oh yeah, that's where that's at. I, under, I know this place. It'd be like somebody saying we know there would be a prophecy about Bluffton or be a prophecy about Decatur, you know, and Maybe if we're if the Earth is still around in 2,000 years or 20,000 years, we, they could read that and people had no idea where Fort Wayne and Ossian and Bluffton were. But for the people who are reading this, they know these places. On every head is baldness; every beard is shorn, which means cut. In the streets they wear sackcloth. On the housetop and in the squares, everyone wails and melts in tears. Heshbon and Elila. Ileala, cry out. Their voice is heard as far as Jehaz. Therefore the armed men of Moab cry aloud. His soul trembles. This is given a description of what is going on in Moab as the invader is coming in. Like I said, we don't know who the invader is. It doesn't tell us. But if it is Assyria, this would have been during the time of Hezekiah. It probably was. Assyria, they've attacked the fortress cities. They've attacked the big cities. They've taken them out. Nowadays, what they would do, you know, when we go into invade a country, what do we do? We take out the we take out the power plants, we take out the communications. We take out the water supply. Then we take over the nation. Then we spend billions and billions of dollars to rebuild them after we're done. But needless to say, that's what we do. 
But so they've taken the big cities, and the people are wailing. The devastation is so great. What are the first thing that the people do? They turn to their god. Well, the problem is that their god is a god named Shemosh. And they turn to him for help. They wail. They have cut off their hair. They've cut off their beards. But Shemosh cannot help them because Shemosh doesn't exist. He is not real. He is a creation of their own imagination. At the, at the, at the extreme, you could probably say that Shemosh is nothing more, if they do ever experience something supernatural with Shemosh, it's nothing more than a demon. It's nothing more than one of the fallen angels, the fallen sons of God. The Moabites, they wail, they cry out. But in the process, what are they doing? They're just wearing themselves out. But see, if we look at what they're doing, all the wailing, all of the self-deprecation, all the things they do, if we contrast that to what Jesus tells us to do in Matthew 6, 7, it says, and when you pray, he says, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And I would, I would, I'm not adding to this, but I would also say, understand that today there's a lot of people who come to you and say, well, you know, I've got these words. If you just say these words over and over again, supernatural things are going to happen to you. That's the same thing. Just because you repeat a word a thousand times does not make it true. Does not make it happen. We are supposed to come to, to God humbly giving him our petition, giving him what we need, praising him, confessing our sins, thanking him for who he is. That's why Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer. The, the structure of that is what we, how we need to pray. We don't go to him and just keep praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. The same thing and the same words and long prayers. Unless, of course, we are actually have a lot to deal with with God, and then we're doing that, but it's not just repetition. But we see this graphic detail of the sorrow of the Moabites. Shaved heads and beards. Sorry, Jeff and Dave. Shaved heads was a sign of sadness for them. When they were sad, they would shave their head. And many times they would pluck out their beards. It wouldn't just be that they shaved their beards. They would actually sit there in grief and pull their beards out. And to not have a beard in Middle Eastern society at that time was, a sh- was shameful. The men wore beards. Baldness was outlawed at times in Israel. You couldn't be bald because, out, because the, the actually in the, in the pagan rituals, the priests would shave their heads. So many times... The Israelites would they would outlaw being bald because they didn't want to be associated with that. No matter how much they do, how much they wail, how much they shave their head, Shemosh does not answer them. This lifeless God cannot save his people. See, I think that it's in times of of trials, of times of agony and sorrow, that we can learn and we can value the validity of our true faith. See, when we we have man-made altars in our hearts, they don't do us any good. But you and I, we can trust in God during our times of tribulation. 
But we must also understand that God is not, is not required to wait for us. We are supposed to seek Him out. In our time of need, we need to go to Him. Well, why doesn't God come to me? Why doesn't, why doesn't God just take of this? Have you asked? Have you, have you, have you come to Him humbly and, and in a submissive way and ask Him to help you? Or at least, if not, to get you out of this, to, to, for His will to be done and for you to find peace, for Him to show, show you His strength during this time? What have you asked for? What is God showing you? What is He teaching you? And, you know, we, we can't come to Him in those times of trials and then ignore Him the rest of our lives. God is not a, God is not a vending machine that we plop our money into and pull the lever and we get what we want, hopefully. God's a God of relationship. He wants us to talk to Him and be with Him daily, seeking Him. We can't ignore Him. In Proverbs, Proverbs 1, this is what it says. It says, How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make the word, my words known to you. Because I have called you and, and you refuse to listen, have, I've stretched out my hand and no one has heeded it. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will also laugh at your calamity. I don't want to hear God laughing at me. I'm sure he does, but for other reasons. Good reasons. He laughs at some of the crazy things I do because he created me. He thinks it's funny how he creates us. But here God is laughing at our calamity because we don't turn to him. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. God is a God of relationship, not a God of, you know, he's not, he's not the break the glass in case of emergency God. He's the daily seeking, communing fellowship with God. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. When we ignore God's word, is it any wonder we have calamity at times? Is it any wonder that we have stress and trials in our lives when we ignore the word of God? God laughs at our troubles when we ignore his wisdom. But what's kind of interesting here is that God doesn't necessarily, he's not laughing at the Moabites. It says in verse eight or verse 5 of Isaiah 15, it says, My heart cries out for Moab. My heart cries out. Her fugitives flee to Zoar, to Eglath, Shalashiah, for at the ascent of Lehith, they go up weeping. On the road to Horanim, they raise a cry of destruction. The waters of Nimrim are of desolation. The grass is withered. The vegetation fails. The greenery is no more. 
Therefore, the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they carry away from the brook of willows. For a cry has gone around the land of Moab. Her wailing reaches to Eglim. Her wailing reaches to Beer Elam. See, God's not laughing at them now. He's not laughing at the grief and the suffering of the Moabites. He's weeping for them. This once proud nation has become a nation of refugees. The image we see here is of this line of refugees running from the enemy. As the enemy is coming, chances are if it wasn't Syria, they're coming from the north. So they're probably so the the they're probably the refugees are running south and going around the bottom of the Dead Sea, crying. And yet in the process, what do they do? They trying to take their possessions with them. You've seen the pictures. You see the pictures from World War II, like when Poland was invaded, when the countries were invaded, you see these long lines of people in carts with horses, or people carrying, you know, pulling carts with all their possessions on them, all their worldly possessions that they can carry. This is the image we get. These refugees are being are being driven out of their, their country, crying and yet attempting to take these possessions with them. What would you take? What would you take from your home? Pictures, heirlooms, weapons, hopefully your children, your family. What would you take? See, if the Moabites are carrying gold and silver, they're not going to get very far. You can only, those get kind of heavy. And that's what we see here. The abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they carry away over the brook of the willows. There comes a point that your life would be worth much more than your possessions. And you would leave them, just drop them to run from the invader. They're running for their lives, leaving their old life behind because the slaughter is so terrible. If you know anything about the Assyrians, they were brutal. And this is what it says in verse 9, how I know that not everybody is making it out and not all of them are carrying their possessions because here's what it says. For the waters of Debon are full of blood. For I will bring upon Debon even more a lion for those of Moab who escape for the remnant of the land. Hmm. Where are they going to run to? What are they going to do? The enemy has pursued them to the river and he's slaughtering them. They only have one place to run. Their military strength was broken. Their religious strength is gone. It was useless. They're running for their lives. So now what they must do, what they have to do, and what, in fact, actually what you're going to find out is what God actually tells them to do is to turn to their cousin the Israelites. They're sworn enemies. The very ones that they pestered, the very ones that they led astray, the very ones that they tried to curse, now they must come to them and ask them for help. But why would Israel help them after all that the Moabites had done? 
Isaiah will say that Israel is their only hope that they have. Chapter 16, verse 1 says, Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah, by way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. What God is doing here, he is instructing the Moabites to seek Israel for help. Israel is the place where their salvation comes. That's important because Israel is the place where our salvation comes. Jesus was a Jew. That's where salvation for the world comes from. Paul says, salvation first came to the Jews and then to the Greeks. It's through the Jews that we have Christ we see in this, we see this, this foreshadowing that the Bible does so many times, over and over again. We are to flee to Christ as our refuge. In Jericho, whose house was it that the spies went into? And anybody that was in the house was protected. Anybody outside was not. It was Rahab, who also ends up in the line of Christ, by the way. When the walls came down, only the people who were inside her house were saved. During the flood, if you were in the ark, you were saved. If you weren't, you were done. You were dead. At the first Passover in Egypt, if you were inside a house that had the blood of the lamb over the doorpost and the lentils, you were saved by the blood of the lamb. If you were outside and you were a firstborn, you were killed by the angel of death. These are all pictures again and again of salvation that comes through Christ. We must run to the daughter of Zion in our time of need. We must run to Christ, foreshadows of the salvation that we have through Christ. When tribulation comes to this world, and it's coming, I think sooner than we think, the only way we're going to be safe is through our faith in Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean we're not going to be killed. It doesn't mean that we're not going to you know, struggle in it. What it does mean is we're going to make it through it one way or another by our faith in Christ. But those who are outside of the faith are going to ultimately come to judgment and wrath and death. Isaiah goes on in verse 3. He says, give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of the noon. noon. He's, he's telling the Israelites, this is what you need to do. You need to give counsel. You need to grant them justice, which is to protect them. Make your shade like night at the height of noon. Shelter the outcast. Do not reveal the fugitive. Don't hand them over to the Assyrians. Protect them. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Sojourning just means travel. Let them be among you. There's something special in Israel. If you are an outsider and you're traveling through there, they're supposed to protect you. You wonder why Lot brought in the two men and offered the crowd his daughters in their place? Because these were, these were travelers. In their culture, you bring a traveler and you treat them better than you do your own family. We reverse that. We treat our fa- our, sometimes we treat our family better than we do anybody else. Other times we don't. But that was the culture. 
Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and the destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the ground. And this is where we get prophecy about the coming kingdom. It says, Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and honor will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. This is, this is a stunning prophecy about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Not his first coming, but his second coming. When all of this is done, when all the stuff that's going to happen, if you want to go through, we can read through Revelation, when all that is done, a throne will be set up and Jesus Christ will sit on that throne and he will judge justly. And he will seek justice and he'll be swift to do righteousness. Jesus is the final refuge. Jesus is our only hope. We see this establishment of the Davidic kingdom where righteousness reigns and brings justice, not just to Israel, but to the nations. For all spiritual refugees, which is what we all are, Jesus is the final refuge. He is the place of our safety. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the, the Moabites were extremely proud. They were a small nation, yes, but they were extremely proud. And we've talked about what pride does. last couple weeks we've talked about pride. And their disaster, their downfall is a lesson to us to keep our pride in check and to seek God while we still can. Isaiah goes on in verse 6. He says, you have heard of the pride of Moab. How proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence, in his idle boasting, he is not right. He says, therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail. Nobody is outside of God's reach. Every nation we see today in this world will have to answer to God. Mourn, utterly stricken, for the raising cakes of Kir Harasath, for the fields of Heshbon languish and the vine of Sibma, and the lords of the nations have struck down its branches, which reached his jazzer and strayed to the desert, its shoots spread abroad and passed over the sea. It was a great nation, did many things, but it was prideful. It says, Therefore I weep with the weeping of Jazer, for the vine of Sibma. I drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Elialeh. For over your summer fruit and your harvest, the shout has ceased. You know, don't we, don't, we think, don't we think that everything is going to continue the way it's always been? We're very linear in our thinking. You know, I, 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 I had my life, my, my way I grew up, and I want to continue that for my kids. I want to give them more than I have. I want them to have a better life. And there's no guarantee that my kids are going to have anything. There's no guarantee that tomorrow I'll have anything. 
I can't rest in those things. I can't put my, my trust in the things of this world because God could take them away in a heartbeat. Remember, Moab, it was at night. They had no idea what was going to happen. And the enemy attacks at night when they're not ready. It says, and joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful field, and in the vineyards no songs are sung, no cheers are raised, no treader, no treader, tre- no, no tre- tre- <laughs> I'm not going to say that right. No treader treads out wine in the presses. Nobody's doing the things that normally happen every day. It's gone. I have put an end to the shouting. Therefore my inner parts moan like a lyre for Moab and my innermost self for Kirharaseth. And when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself in the high place, I mean, when he's, when he's finally done <laughs> worshiping the false god, when he comes to his, his, his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. We can't trust the things that we have and the things of this world. We can't put our trust fully in that. Look at these. This is, this is a very emotional response. Understand, God does not willingly afflict people. He doesn't, he, he's not spiteful. He doesn't enjoy this. This is not what he wants to do. This was not what he wanted to do. But their actions showed that this is what they want. They may not think so, but this is where their actions led. He finds no joy in causing even those who in their actions have denied him and ignored him. He finds no joy in afflicting them in what they deserve. So people say, well, how can a righteous God send people to hell? He doesn't. You send yourself there. Why would you deny him your whole life and think that in the afterlife he's going to accept you? It's a very emotional response we have in those verses. The book of Lamentations, which is not one that probably many people have heard sermons from, but in chapter 3, it's in verse 32, it says, but though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. What it's saying there is, when God does this stuff, when things happen to us that God is allowing to happen, it's not God from his heart saying, oh yeah, I love doing this, I'm going to do this, this is what you get. No, it's God allowing us to walk in a way that causes us these things to happen to us. He allows it to happen. Sometimes he prompts it to happen to try to, to try to train us and to teach us. But it's not because God's heart is bad and God's heart is evil. He finds no joy in it. He does what he does and allows it to happen what he happens because he knows sometimes... Most times, it's in our extreme desperation that many of us will turn back to him. And sadly, many still in the midst will still not turn to him, no matter how horrendous their trials are. It's God's nature to weep even when he brings affliction And in that same way, we need to weep when we see affliction. We should be weeping for what is happening to the innocent people in Ukraine because of both sides of the political spectrum. Because of what Putin has done and what Zelensky is doing. We should weep for the refugees for what has happened to them. 
Romans 12.15 tells us rejoice with those who rejoice, but weep with those who weep. Now, we're going to find in the end of this chapter, chapter 16, that there's a prophecy that's going to be fulfilled about the end of Moab. This is the word that the Lord spoke concerning Moab in the past. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, In three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt. In spite of all this, his great multitude and those who remain will be very few and feeble. The Moabite nation will be no more. Within three years, Moab is gone. And one day, the whole world is going to be a refugee. One day, the United States will be gone, and we will be refugees. God is going to shake the nations. In the book of Hebrews, there's a prophecy. Hebrews 12 says, At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. God is going to shake this earth and the heavens. It's going to be like a sieve to remove those things that are not of God. All the nations who are alive during that time will run for their lives. It may very well be our future if God tarries much longer. It's a terrible thing that's going to occur. Those of you, if you've, if you've, um, if you're subscribed to either our Rumble page or our YouTube page, I am beginning to. I've just put out a promo. I'm putting out. I'm gonna start doing some videos. I don't know how many each month. I'm gonna try to do at least one a month. Probably more than that. But it's, I've calling it the watchman on the wall. Where I'm, I'm going to talk about things in Scripture and what I see happening in the world today and how it relates. We're going to talk about, I'm going to talk about some of the things from Revelation, some of the things from the prophecy of the New and the Old Testament and how it does and doesn't relate to today. So if you're, if you have a, if you're on YouTube or you're on our Rumble page, you'll be able to watch those. If you're not and you want copies, I can put them on DVD. So if you're interested in that, let me know. We go to the book of Revelation, chapter 6. It says, And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth, and the fig, like a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? Understand, nothing in this world is eternal except for God himself. Do not be deceived. One day, everything we have will be gone. It's going to be burned up. Second Peter, Peter says, But that day of the Lord will come like a thief, and when the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in, the li- in lives of holiness and godliness? 
waiting for and hastening the day of the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Did you catch that? To be in lives of holiness and godliness. That's what we're supposed to do as we wait. Hold on to the things of this world very loosely. Live your life with holiness and godliness. Cry out to God over the hardness of your heart and of your pride. Weep with those who weep. Weep and cry out to God for your lost friends and family members who are being deceived by the world and the spiritual forces of darkness. Whatever God has asked you to do in your life, do it for him. Live your life as a refugee in this world. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're watching on YouTube, please like this video as it will help in spreading this message into the global online community. Please consider subscribing to our page so that you will receive notices when we post new messages. If you're watching this on Rumble, please hit the Rumble button for this video so that the gospel can be spread into the Rumble community. Also, consider subscribing to our Rumble channel. You can also listen to our podcast on Amazon Music and Apple Podcasts. We hope you have a blessed day.